0: Hey, you're listening to Yo, This Can't Be Life, a podcast that aims to educate and inform black women on how to take better care of their physical, mental, and financial health. I'm your host, Bree Montgomery, and I'm inviting you to join me as I interview resident experts to find out the cheat codes to live in your best life. The information provided is intended to be general advice and should not be considered medical advice. For that, please consult your medical professional. This week's episode is all about fibroids, which you probably are aware of as a huge problem for black women. Today in the guest chair, we have Dr. Tiffany Woodis, who has over 10 years of experience in healthcare. She completed a doctor of medicine degree from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in 2006. Subsequently, she completed an internship and residency in obstetrics and gynecology from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Parkland Health and Hospital System in 2010. She is board certified by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. After completing training, Dr. Woodis continued at UTSW as an assistant professor in obstetrics and gynecology where she participated on various residency and policy development committees. Dr. Woodis also was a recipient of numerous PAC awards while at UTSW. This recognition is given to individuals who have demonstrated the highest level of care and service to patients. While following her tenure at a UTSW, Dr. Woodis served as an OB hospitalist at Baylor Scott & White Frisco Medical Center where she currently remains on staff. And with that, I would like to formally welcome you to the show, Dr. Woodis. Go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be a part of this podcast. Again, my name is Dr. Tiffany Woodis. I'm an OBGYN physician. I've been practicing for 14 years. I currently have a practice that I'm starting in Cedar Hill, Texas, that's slated to open in October. We're a comprehensive women's healthcare practice. We have committed ourselves to providing all women with the rights, respect, and resources necessary to thrive in all aspects of their healthcare, and we are 100% committed to ending disparities in women's health care. So I'm super excited about being a part of the podcast today to discuss fibroids, which is a very important issue in our community.
0: It amazes me how common they are in the African-American community. But for those of us who are not really aware, what are fibroids exactly?
1: Sure. Fibroids are an overgrowth of tissue from the muscle layer of the uterus. So literally they are, um, a tumor um, that grows from the muscle layer of the uterus. And they are the most common, solid, benign, or non-cancerous tumor um, located in uh, the pelvis of women. They affect about 30% of women. So that's one in three. And then for African-American women, uh, they are three times more common to affect our community. Um, They can be large, medium, small. You can have one single fibroid or you can have multiple fibroids. You can have fibroids that start in the muscle layer of the uterus and stay there. Uh, You can have fibroids that start in that muscle layer and protrude to the outside of the uterus. You can have the exact opposite fibroids that start in the muscle layer and protrude to the inside. You can have fibroids that are what we call pedunculated or on a stalk, almost like a tree. Uh, You can have fibroids that are down near the cervix. So anywhere you find muscle on the uterus, fibroids can be there.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't Mm -hmm. realize it was so many Mm -hmm. different types. So how do they form? Is there a specific thing that makes your uterus more prone to forming fibroids?
1: That's a good question, and it's one that we are still investigating. Um, We know that they're not necessarily considered to be genetic, as in we haven't identified a gene for example, like the BRCA gene, which we know to be associated with breast and ovarian cancer and other types of cancer in women. So we haven't identified a specific gene, but we know that there is a genetic predisposition, if you will, okay. to women who develop fibroids. So they definitely run in families. So definitely if women in your family have fibroids, you're at increased risk for that. We know that there are some hormonal influences um, that factor into women developing fibroids. We know that they're could potentially be some environmental influences, such as uh, stressors. Um, We know that there could be some dietary influences as well. It's one of those areas that's still wide open for research and a lot needs to be done um, to answer that question.
0: Okay. So you mentioned Mm -hmm. outside stressors, and I hear that a lot um, with a lot of things with African American women as well. So Do you think that the practice of whole body wellness or things that will relieve stress would actually help in at least um, slowing down fibroid growth?
1: I think that we definitely need to pay attention and prioritize um, our stress and the putting into use good practices to manage and deal with that stress because we know that stress sets up a, an inflammatory environment in our body and that inflammation can definitely set us up for various conditions. I don't know that we have any specific research that um, looks at a direct correlation, but we definitely know that inflammatory markers, um, that can be influenced basically by stress or things in our environment can definitely influence conditions like the development or the growth of fibroids for sure.
0: Right, and that's the Mm -hmm. thing I hear a lot. It's not necessarily exact correlation, Mm -hmm. but the environment line up. So perhaps that's just maybe one little ingredient to the mix. Um, Absolutely. So in that, talking about another ingredient to the mix, there's back and forth um, controversy on whether or not diet can affect or prevent these type of tumors. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the subject of nutrition-based therapies for fibroids?
1: Well, we definitely encourage you to optimize your health and well-being by trying to have a healthy, well-balanced diet, but we have not found a direct correlation between specific supplements um, and um, how they relate to the development or growth of fibroids. Um, But in general, uh, going back to paying attention to things that decrease inflammation, um, such as certain dairy products sometimes can be associated with inflammation, lack of uh, certain vitamins in your diet, like vitamin D, vitamin A, those things can increase your risk for inflammation. But there has been no specific correlation that directly says this aspect of your diet um, can affect fibroids.
0: Okay. Now, you mentioned that the tumors are, pretty, are very benign. Mm-hmm. So... They're not necessarily problematic. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. There are some women who have fibroids who have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. They happen to be found incidentally, maybe at the time of a pelvic exam for another reason, maybe just a well woman's exam, or maybe a woman's having an ultrasound done for another reason, like a pregnancy ultrasound. So they can definitely be found incidentally and definitely be asymptomatic. On the other hand, you can have women that have a variety of symptoms with fibroids, You can have uh, normal periods, which we would define a normal period as bleeding that uh, occurs anywhere from 21 to 35 days with no more than seven days of bleeding and not excessive flow. You can have heavy bleeding while you're on your period. You can bleed in between your periods. You could bleed every single day of your life to the point where it's significant. You're anemic, needing blood transfusion. So I know any flavor of bleeding you can imagine, you could see with fibroids. Um, you could also see what we call uh, pelvic pain or pressure symptoms, bulk symptoms. So if you think about it, a fibroid is something extra in the pelvis, taking up space Mm -hmm. where it should not be. And we forget about the other things that are surrounding the uterus. So the bladder smack on the front lower part of the uterus, Mm. the rectum is behind it. So if you have a fibroid that's big enough to press on or affect these organs, you can see urinary or bowel problems. You can have pain with intercourse. Um, the fibroids could be just pressing on your musculoskeletal system, so it could cause pelvic pain, it could cause leg pain, back pain, those sorts of things can be seen. If you have a fibroid that's taking up space in the cavity inside the uterus, you could see issues related to fertility. Um, it's, such as uh, recurrent miscarriage um or even um malpresentation where a baby is breached because the fibroid is in the way and the baby Ooh. can't get head down for delivery. So there's a myriad of symptoms you can definitely see with fibroids.
0: Okay. So with that said, if you suspect you have fibroids, would you then call your doctor to do a pelvic exam? Or how do you know between just say, you know, strong PMS or a heavy mm-hmm. period to mm-hmm. to suspecting that you may have fibroids?
1: Well, I would say if you feel that your period is not typical, so um, going back to what we described is what we would consider a typical period, mm-hmm. if it is bothersome to you. So really, we let you as the patient be the guide. So if it is affecting your uh, ability to function, you know, if you are having such pain and discomfort that you can't go about your activities of daily living, it's preventing you from going to work or you're missing school or those sorts of things. Um, It's not uh, the pain and discomfort. It's not controlled by typical over-the-counter medicines, typical interventions that you might try, like rest or hydrating yourself, um, warm baths, warm compresses compresses, those sorts of things, we would definitely consider that you have a discussion with your physician about it. So we talk about what your what your symptoms of concern are, uh, depending on how, um, how that information is laid out, proceed with a pelvic exam, and then potentially go on to do further evaluations with things like ultrasounds to give us more information about what's going on.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of times that I've heard of people finding out about fibroids when they're really big, like the size of an orange or Mm -hmm. a grapefruit or something like that. Typically, is this because um, pelvic exams are not done as often? Or are they just like low in places? Because I'm trying to figure out how can one find them earlier, especially if they're that big to the point where they may be problematic in ways that you don't know about
1: Mm -hmm.
0: or or if you you know wouldn't necessarily assume fibroids you know you're having issues but not necessarily assume fibroid
1: right i think that if you are not going to your annual exams um, with your ob and having uh, a pelvic exam done every year and discussing your concerns with your physician, it could potentially be missed there. The also, you also need to keep in mind that uh, the pelvic exam is not 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely ex- de- depends on um, a person's body type. Um, for example, if you have a tendency towards being heavier, the pelvic exam becomes less accurate. Um, If the woman is extremely uncomfortable during the pelvic exam, you also may not get a very good exam as well. So there are a couple of different factors that can definitely decrease the accuracy of the pelvic exam. So definitely it needs to be a combination of discussing your concerns with your physician, the exam, and then seeing from there if any other imaging modalities need to be done.
0: And that brings me to another question of gynecological care. Mm There has been a shift to going to two and three years between exams. What are your thoughts on that?
1: This is a good question that I get asked all the time. So we still recommend a well woman's exam every year. What you're referring to is the pap smear for cervical cancer screening. Mm -hmm. So those recommendations have definitely changed. Um, So we now recommend that pap smears start at the age of 21. Mm -hmm. And depending on your health history, um, they can be done sometimes every three years or five years, depending on your health history and your risk factors for um, precancerous or cancerous changes to the cervix. That's a good question. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you Mm -hmm. for that. And I think a lot of
0: times, at least I didn't get the feeling and maybe I just wasn't paying attention enough. I don't think Mm -hmm. they really separated the exam from the visit because I've, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times I heard annual and so mm-hmm. you don't have to come every year, every two years. And then some. sometimes I've even heard people say that insurance will save three years, but it's really the pap smear part and not necessarily- Exactly. The, okay, All Exactly.
1: Right. Breast and pelvic exam, we still recommend every year for sure. Right. But the pap smear can vary depending on your history.
0: Okay, okay, mm-hmm. that's good to know. Mm-hmm. So with that, now some, as i was saying some people find out they have big tumors really late and there's a recommendation for removal mhm are people is it a size thing or like you said before is it more of a how it impacts the body what kind of things are the deciding factors for just to, to say you, you you should get them removed
1: that's a good question. Uh, so one of the first things that um, I ask women woman is how is it impacting you? Um, you know, if you are having normal periods, you're not anemic, you're not symptomatic, is this something that we can conservatively manage by monitoring to see if you then go on at some point to develop symptoms and to make sure that your symptoms remain stable? So that's one of the first questions I ask. Is, and it's A reasonable conversation and thing to consider is, is expectant management reasonable, Um, which is just that. Can we monitor you for the development of symptoms and make sure that the pelvic exam remains the same? Beyond that, I think that we don't do a good enough job educating women about all of their options, Um, and a lot of times it has to do with uh, what are your childbearing desires, because a lot of the options that have to do with the management of uterine fibroids depend upon whether or not a woman has had children yet or desires to have children in the future, because some of these treatment options um, will not facilitate uh, pregnancies in the future for sure. Uh, so we definitely need to do a better job um, as patients being an advocate, an advocate for our health to make sure that we have kind of the buffet of options and that we understand all of the risks and benefits of those options and how it, in, it can impact our fertility and our life goals. Um, in the future, I always start with conservative management and then I talk about medical options, so medications that we can use to target your symptoms. So we have to first identify what's your what's your main concern? Is it pain or pressure symptoms, bulk symptoms, or is your concern bleeding? Um, and we tailor our me- medical management to address those symptoms. Um, and then beyond that, if we have tried medical management, so we start conservatively with the options that have the least com- amount of risk associated with them. If those things don't work for us, then we move on to more invasive measures, which is still not hysterectomy. We have minimally invasive surgical options that we can use to, tra- to target these um, issues as well. But again, the thing that's of foremost importance is what is a woman's childbearing desire. Uh, so we talk about all of those options before we even even consider or bring up the H word or hysterectomy.
0: That's awesome because I've heard too many horror stories about that Mm -hmm. not being the case. Mm -hmm. What kind of meds? like, so can you take us through those phases? Like what Mm -hmm. are some of the medicines or in that early management, no cutting type phase?
1: Good question. So it could be something as simple as just pain control. Um, So um, a lot of times we use anti-inflammatory medicines um, prescription-strength anti-inflammatory medicines. We know that at prescription-strength, they can decrease the inflammation pain associated with uterine fibroids, as well as decrease the amount of bleeding associated with them as well. There are some other medications that are non-hormonal options, um, a medicine called transexemic acid that decreases the amount of blood loss that's associated with uterine fibroids as well. So that's a non-hormonal option. Um, and then we get into hormonal treatment options, which could be anything like birth control pills that you're used to taking because we can uh, control the side effects related to fibroids. It won't get rid of the fibroids or shrink the fibroids, but it should decrease the pain and um, bleeding associated with the fibroids. Um, You could get into other forms of um, hormonal therapy using things like Depo-Provera, using progesterone IUDs or other hormonal medications to decrease the amount of blood loss associated with fibroids as well. So there are lots of options. It just depends on your specific um, situation, uh, your exam as well, and your desires. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So that was the phase one. And I know I hear a lot of different things about the hormones. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is it true that estrogen levels are higher when you have fibroids?
1: We definitely see um, a predisposition towards higher estrogen levels in the growth of uterine fibroids. That is true.
0: Do we do anything to try to figure out why that is? Is that maybe the, you know, the result of another issue?
1: There, it can be, but there are also phases in our lives when we are associated or uh, exposed to higher estrogen levels as well. For example, during pregnancy, we're exposed to higher estrogen levels. By the same token, in menopause, when our estrogen levels decline, you see a shrinkage of fibroids. They don't necessarily disappear, but because they're not being stimulated to grow by that estrogen hormone, you will see them shrink and become um, significantly less symptomatic or even asymptomatic in the menopausal period as well. So that's a really good question, a good point.
0: Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in phase two, Mm -hmm. where we're doing some things, you know, Mm -hmm. way before the H word, can you take us through what those kind of options are?
1: Sure. Uh, These are the minimally invasive surgical options, um, and they can include things like ablation procedures. So, for example, um, if a woman is having specifically heavy bleeding associated with her fibroids, uh, sometimes you can do just an endometrial ablation where you actually... Um, use electricity, electrocautery, to destroy the inner lining of the uterus and decrease the amount of blood flow from that area. Now, again, this doesn't affect the fibroid themselves. The fibroid will still be there, but it decreases mm-hmm. the outcome of the fibroid, which is the heavy bleeding. Alternatively, there is a procedure called Excessa, which is another ablation procedure uh, where you actually can use um, um, the ablation to target, almost destroy the fibroid itself. Um, so you apply this energy to the fibroid itself and, and the tissue shrinks and regresses so that the fibroid becomes less symptomatic. But this has to do with, you know, a woman's, again, desire for childbearing. It has to do with um, your desire to f- preserve your uterus and you are, you're going to need your uterus for later use, for example, if you're interested in having children. So for the excessive mm-hmm. procedure, Uh, Pregnancies have been reported post-procedure there, but our numbers are still low and we're still learning about what that might look like in terms of any risk that might be associated with it. Alternatively, for the endometrial ablation, pregnancy is absolutely not recommended. It is contraindicated. uh, Because if you can imagine, you've just destroyed that layer of the uterus where a pregnancy implants. So you can imagine Mm. that if a pregnancy should happen post-procedure, it could be extremely, extremely risky and life-threatening to both the mom and the baby. Um, wow, okay. You can also um, look at radiological procedures like uterine artery embolization. So this is a procedure where they actually map out where the uterine artery, they start with the femoral artery, follow it up to where the uterine artery um, is located and place a substance in that uterine artery to block the blood flow through the uterine artery which is the uterus's main blood supply so it causes the tissue to shrink down and digress as well Um, so that could be an option for some ladies that's often one of the options that we recommend for women who have other medical problems who are not necessarily good surgical candidates because it could be risky to their health and well-being Um, And then alternatively, you have myomectomies, which is a surgical procedure where you physically remove the fibroid. And that could be done in a variety of different ways. Um, It could be done hysteroscopically, which is where you place um, a camera inside the uterus and you perform the surgery from the inside of the uterus. It could be done laparoscopically, so minimally invasively, um, where we use laparoscopic instruments to do the procedure, or it could be done through an open procedure, like a C-section incision. and and thereby, it preserves the uterus for a woman who's interested in later having children. Yeah, that's a lot, I know.
0: <laughs> no, that's it's great because I feel like a lot of women who've even had one of these type of things did not know mm-hmm. that there were so many other options available. And I feel like people mm-hmm. need to know all of the options to make their best decision. And even tell me...
1: Absolutely. The
0: pros and cons, like why would I choose that? Like how you broke down, hey, if you're going to get pregnant in the future, this is not the one for you versus if you do want to have a baby, like all of that information is needed because... When you know more about what you're dealing with, you can make the best decision for you, and that's custom to you. But you have to know what the options are. So I appreciate the breakdown of everything. That's what I want because I need to. Absolutely. I'm the type of person that needs to know, especially with my body. You're cutting on you. You know, mm-hmm. I need to know exactly what's going on.
1: Absolutely. I I try to give you the buffet of options and then tell you why I would or would not recommend each and every one of them so that you can make the best decision for you. You cannot make an informed decision if you do not have all of the information. Right.
0: Yes. So You're definitely the type Mm -hmm. of doctor that I would need on my team. And I hope that more doctors go into that because I've heard some horror stories and it's just so unfortunate.
1: It truly is. It truly is. Um, And you know, you have to really commit yourself to asking the hard questions. Um, You know, I have to say to people, I have to say to women who come to me and say, you know, Dr. Woodis, I'm interested in a myomectomy. I have to say to them, you know, please understand the risk associated with this. Please understand that, you know, if I cut into the muscle wall of the uterus, there is a risk that it could bleed. And there's a possibility that that could end in me having to remove your uterus. In order to uh, make the procedure safe for you. So, if I were to wake you up from this procedure, would you be okay with that? Sure. I mean, you have to really think through those things um, and the impact that it could have on you because, you know, you, we can't go back. You know? Yeah.
0: So, I know you mentioned like sometimes they don't even find the fibroids until the person is pregnant. What mm-hmm. happens in that scenario?
1: You know, a lot of times you can go on to have a healthy pregnancy and it not be affected at all by the fibroids. Um, just like you potentially have lived the majority of your life and not had any effect by the fibroids whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like I said, a good percentage of people are asymptomatic, meaning they're not bothering them at all. So, I mean, I I can personally tell you I had fibroids in, in two pregnancies and no issues okay, whatsoever. Okay. Um, that's that's not everyone's mm-hmm. story, though. Um There can be, um, like I said, sometimes if you are dealing with issues related to infertility um, and you've gone through the evaluation trying to see if you can determine what might be associated with your either difficulty achieving pregnancy or maintaining Mm -hmm. pregnancy, sometimes fibroids can be identified as contributing to that. And in those discussions, sometimes we recommend removing them um, because we want to make sure that your uterus is as healthy as possible to give you the best chances of success. So sometimes um, that could be a recommendation there. In other cases, um, you might see, like I said, increased risk for miscarriage, or increased risk for what we call malpresentation, um, where baby is not head down, baby might be breached or in some other position and then have to be delivered by a cesarean section because of where the fibroids are located that could actually obstruct your labor. Um, Sometimes you see increased pain and discomfort in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And women with fibroids, too, because, you know, as the uterus is growing and is taking up more space and pressing on things and then this extra fibroid tumor there, you know, pressing on the rib cage, pressing on the musculoskeletal system, it just becomes can become very uncomfortable.
0: Okay, And with that, I guess the the pain medication may not be as much of an option.
1: There are pain medications that we can use in pregnancy okay. if we need to, but we try to be more conservative with it for sure. Okay. Yeah.
0: So if, if you're one of those people that you mentioned where, you know, you're trying to get pregnant and you're having complications and come find out these fibroids are impacting your ability to conceive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get the surgery or whatever. I've heard of people having, I guess, Complications post surgery. What kind of things can go wrong?
1: Okay, so anytime you have surgery, we counsel patients that um, the More common risks are pain, infection, bleeding. So anytime you go inside the body, pain, infection, bleeding are kind of the three main risks that you're concerned about. Anything in the surrounding area is at risk for injury. So surrounding the uterus would be tubes, ovaries, nerves, blood vessels, bowel, bladder. There's always a risk of not being able to complete the surgery. Mm Um, So a complication that happens during the surgery that necessitates stopping the procedure. Uh, There's always a risk of blood transfusion. So losing so much blood that you then need to be transfused uh, in order to um, help the situation. Um, And then if the surgery, for example, is minimally invasive, for example, the intent was just to remove the fibroid, there is a risk of losing the uterus as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Women need to know um, who... uh, Women need to know... um, That if they are getting a myomectomy, if it is a surgery that requires you to cut into the muscle layer of the uterus, which in most cases it does, uh, when you remove the fibroid, that we recommend cesarean sections for all deliveries going forward. Because you can imagine if I've made a cut into the muscle layer of the uterus, that area is not as strong. It's not as robust as what it was before. So when you go into labor and you have those repetitive, strong um, contractions right at that area, that layer of the uterus gets thinner, 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 which is exactly what it should as you progress in labor, till the point where it's paper thin at time for delivery, and that potential weak point can become a point of rupture, which is an emergency, life threatening for both the baby and the mom. So in order to prevent that, um, you must have C sections after you have a myomectomy if it cuts into the muscle layer of the uterus. So also something that I think a lot of women aren't aware of.
0: Right. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you put us on to that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So for the, because it's hormone related sometimes, does that mean as you get older, they naturally shrink?
1: Mm -hmm. We do. I have some ladies who, um, because they have tolerable to minimal symptoms, uh, we are able to, Conservatively manage them as symptoms arise until they get to the point of menopause. Because when those hormone levels naturally decrease in menopause, we definitely see uh, fibroids become less symptomatic or completely asymptomatic as they go into menopause. That can be a possibility for sure.
0: Okay. So that's wonderful to hear because Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. it might really just be a waiting game if it's.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Now, if you're 30 and you're dealing with severe right, symptoms, yeah. you know, the average age of yeah. menopause is 51. Be, so yeah. waiting 20 years. Yeah. yeah, that might not be an option for yeah. you. But if these symptoms come up at 48 per right, then yes. Yeah. As long as you're not severely symptomatic, severely anemic. I mean, we clearly can't be walking, you know, having you walking around compromising your health and well-being, you know, bleeding out every month and that type of thing. Um, so we definitely want them to be the symptoms to be tolerable, but yes, that could be an option depending on kind of your age at presentation and the severity of your symptoms.
0: Okay. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're if you're at if you see the light at the end of the tunnel, there's hope. There's hope. Okay. <laughs> there's hope. You know, I like hope.
1: Um mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: So what are what are some places or um resources that that you feel like people find helpful if they want more information about fibroids?
1: I always send people to um, ACOG, which is the um, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Okay. They, um, there are excellent patient resources there uh, that go into detail about this information, and it's a good starting point for reliable information. Um, I've also found a variety of um, groups on social media Um, that I think also give good information. And probably they do more so um, a good job of bringing awareness to these situations. I feel like um, a lot of times with this issue, as well as other women's health issues, we suffer with these things in silence. We don't even talk to our own family about these issues. We just assume that what we're dealing with is normal. um, And we don't get the opportunity to even realize um, that perhaps what we're doing or what we're dealing with on a monthly basis is extreme um, and there can be a better way to live for sure. So I think just the awareness that these groups bring um, is a good, is a good thing. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Now I think you might've touched on it a little bit before, but are there certain types of birth controls that you would recommend either for people who have small fibroids and, you know, want to try to help not see them grow or for people who have a lot of fibroids maybe in their family and they're trying to do anything to maybe lower the risk of having the uncomfortable size fibroids?
1: The choice of what type of hormonal therapy or other birth control that you um, choose really has to do with personal preference. Um, It could also have a lot to do with uh, your exam. So, for example, you know, if your lifestyle is such that you don't want to be bothered by having to take a pill every day, then perhaps another option would be better for or you um, are concerned that you won't remember to take the pill every day. Then we might consider something that's more low maintenance, long term. Like the patch or the ring, or even the shot, or even Morena. So it just really kind of depends on your anatomy, what your desires are, what your lifestyle is like. Um, And then there can be other risk factors in terms of who is a good candidate to take hormone therapy as well. So, you know, if you um, have a personal history of um, strokes Mm -hmm. or Um, you know, those sorts of things, we definitely would not want to put you on hormone therapy. Okay.
0: So it's not, so sometimes it's not really about what kind of hormones to have in your body for therapy. It's really more so what your whole body can deal with.
1: Exactly. Exactly. We look at the whole picture to make those decisions. Okay.
0: So I think that might be all the questions I had. Are there any things that you wanted to add to make sure that people know and understand about fibroids?
1: No, I think this has been a good discussion i um, i'm I think we did uh, a good job covering most topics. I do want to emphasize that we definitely need to um, have more research done in this area, particularly in understanding why black women are three times more likely to develop fibroids, why we get them at a younger age or why we're at least diagnosed with them at a younger age, and then you know why they seem to be more numerous in number, mm-hmm. you know, in comparison to our counterparts, larger in size. Um, and then go the next step, which is to figure out, as we uh, I think touched on briefly, um, why we are when we undergo treatments for uh, fibroids, why we are kind of funneled towards one particular treatment type versus another, and then right. why we have higher complication rates associated with those treatments versus our counterparts. So there is, this is a huge gray area that leaves a lot of room for research. uh, And we really have to use our voice to be active in pushing uh, these issues and bringing them forth uh, so that uh, we can, we can be counted.
0: Okay. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. I wholeheartedly. Absolutely. So for those of us who are lucky enough to be in your area, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where your practice would be?
1: Yes. So I am in Cedar Hill, Texas, which is the Southern area of Dallas. So it's uh, South Dallas, Cedar Hill, Duncanville, DeSoto, that area. Um, and it is, um, it's a new practice up and coming. There are um, very few of us in that area. So I'll be one of three black female OBGYNs in that area. Wow. Uh, so I'm excited to uh, bring this service to the community. I'm excited to um, partner with the community um, in bringing awareness to issues like uterine fibroids, awareness to issues that disproportionately affect our community so that we can figure out how to educate ourselves um, and how to empower ourselves to to take control of these issues and, and to, um, really get a grip, get a good grip on our health and well being.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And are you on social media? Like how can we contact you or a website maybe?
1: Yeah. Um, so you can find me on Facebook, on Instagram at, at Doc Wittes, at D O C W O O D U S. Okay. Yes.
0: Well, I would like to thank you for joining us this week. I think this information was fantastic. I learned a lot and I hope everyone else did too.
1: Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.
0: And there you have it. I hope you found this episode helpful. Again, you can find what is on